Welcome to the Like, Bite, and Share podcast, brought to you by Schweiden Sons. Learn the secrets of food and hospitality marketing from some of the best professionals in the food business. Here are your co-hosts, Rev Ciancio from Schweiden Sons and Brad Garoon from BurgerWeekly.com. What up, everybody? Welcome to Like, Bite, and Share podcast. Uh, I'm Brad Garoon, and I am, as always, joined by the Rev Dave Ciancio. What's up, Rev? Hi, buddy. I'm excited that you know two burger guys started a podcast to talk about burgers and food marketing, and uh, we're going to be joined today by Wes Pakula from Buddy's Pizza, and we're really not going to talk about hamburgers. No, I mean, we'll, we'll, I think we'll get a little bit of hamburger in there. <laughs> Buddy's Pizza does sell a hamburger. I don't know how big of a, uh, or how much people really know that. Uh, we're not going to get too deep, but yeah, we're going to talk a lot about pizza today. Um, why don't you let everybody know how this came to be? So, so a quick intro to, to this podcast. So, you know, Brad and I started with a list of, you know, we want to have this type of guest and we want to talk to this person and this is the type of show we want to have. And, you know, we're both big on social media. We're total dorks and we, you know, we dork out on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram about our love of, you know, burgers, french fries, whatever. And we were arguing about uh, pizza from the native, our native land of Detroit. And, you know, Buddy's Pizza, which is a local chain in Detroit, got thrown in the middle. And uh, as you'll hear in this interview with Wes, it's really a great tale of tradition and customer service. And in a testament to them having that still be a part of who they are today, somebody jumped on Twitter, saw us arguing about pizza, and had their publicist reach out to us with, A, hey, if you want to order us pizza you know, overnight into New York, here's the information on how to do that, which was helpful. But then also said, would you be interested in speaking to you know, Wes Pakula uh, on the podcast and having him be a part of it? So, I mean, really, it's just an, an awesome story about customer service. Yeah, I'm stoked. I mean... I'm going to just put out there that I took the Buddy's Pizza side in this initial conversation, so I feel like I'm vindicated <laughs> in, uh, in my love for Buddy's. Uh, I'm going to eat it again when I go home in a little bit. And, uh, and you know, we had some just, uh, just this past week because they did ship it out to us. Uh, I don't know any other regional pizza chain that does that. doesn't mean they don't exist. But um, real quick before we jump to our conversation with Wes, how was your, uh, your pizza? Uh, so it's funny. My wife's never had it. She has had a, the competitor's pie, which I did lose in that argument. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she was a fan, and she's a native New Yorker. So her thing was like, whatever, Detroit-style pizza, and she loved it. And uh, I, you know, I made it for a bunch of my friends yesterday, and they're all like, this is amazing. I'm like, I tell you, Detroit-style pizza. We're, we're going to eat some more tonight, and I'm super stoked about it. Yeah, I, uh, I thought I was going to eat it by myself. It was going to be a lonely pie. But then um, when my roommates walked in, and this dude's always sharing food with me, so I shared it with him, and his eyes got real big. But luckily, my appetite is bigger than his, and he couldn't finish his half, so I got to eat some of it for breakfast. <laughs> so that was awesome. Maybe, maybe we just need to inspire somebody to start a, a Detroit-style pizza place in New York City. There's, a tr- there's all kinds of foods that don't exist in New York that I think need to, and this obviously tops the list. Well, this is kind of a lengthy conversation and a fun one, so why don't we just get into that right now? Let's do it. I want to welcome Wesley Pakula to the show. Wesley is the Vice President of Operations for Buddy's Pizza, a 79-year-old regional pizza chain in Detroit. Uh, the original location was a neighborhood tavern and even spent some time rumored as a speakeasy. Uh, in 1946, they added a Sicilian-style square pizza to the menu, and it's this pizza that's helped shape the Buddy's story. Uh, Buddy's now has 11 locations throughout the Detroit metro area. Wes, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Love well, to be here. We're both very excited. I think for the listening audience uh, who probably don't know, uh, both myself, Rev, and Brad here are, uh, are from Detroit. 
uh, or native Detroiters, as I like to say, and are huge, huge fans of Buddy's Pizza. Well, we definitely have a lot of people that have been transplanted out of the city all over the country, so, and we appreciate the fans out there, truly. I think for the, uh, for the sake of the listeners, can you describe what a Detroit-style pizza is? Well, a Detroit-style pizza basically is a pizza that's cooked in a black metal pan. The dimensions are approximately 10 by 14. It's actually made from a black steel or blue steel, and it is sort of odd in the sense that the, the pans were actually used as um, nuts and bolts, sort of crate material that uh, foundries and stuff used to store a lot of their leftover stuff. So they had an actual size that fit the pizza that the original founders were going to make, and consequently they put the dough into this metal pan and created, a, we call it a square pizza, it's technically a rectangle, and then the pizza was built a little bit different than traditional pizzas. What you had is you had started with the dough that was made, the dough was pressed, the pepperoni was placed on the dough, and then the cheese was put over the pepperoni, and then the sauce went on top. And then that pizza was baked for, I'd say, about 450 degrees for about 40 minutes in a day. So the pan itself sort of became like a black skillet pan. It sort of did an amazing job of transferring flavors and had all this residue that got built into these pans. And the funny part is these pans actually have creases in the corners. So what would happen over time is because you couldn't wash them because they would rust, you, you wipe them and the, the flavors would just accumulate. And uh, the crust sort of had an original flavor that you couldn't really find anywhere. So we're cooking with these in some cases, 30, 40, 50-year-old pans that uh, they give it a unique flavor. What exactly is blue steel? It's just, it, actually it's a version of uh, regular stainless steel, but it's there's a bluing effect that takes place in a foundry, so it didn't rust. Mm. And so what would happen is because these this company uh, it's been out of business now, but uh, they used to make these massive containers and they made small containers and they blued the steel so that stuff wouldn't rust. And that's the reason, my belief is anyways, that he, uh, the original founders used it. Uh, if you had regular stainless, what would happen is, not stainless, but a version of stainless, it's actually cold rolled steel, it would get rust blotches on it. So that's why the blue steel is used. Uh, and so, so you're still using some of these pans today, nope. like the originals, or yeah, they're actually all the pans. I mean, they're the original store in Detroit's probably got pans that are over 30 years old. Holy smokes! And so, what happens, uh, you know, when you open a new store and you need pans? Are they well? What what, ha what happens is, and this is where you know you talk about marketing, or you talk about how to build a brand. We actually take pans from that original store, and we'll take them to the new location. We'll buy new pans and we season them and then we bring them into the original store so we we have this old pan going to a new location and the new pan going to the old location and so again the the uh, effect isn't as great I mean some of it is a little bit of folklore but that's how we try to generate the flavor into new location and then we mix and match because different pans uh, you know, they're, they're not really porous. I think the main effect is the creasing in the corners that accumulates some of the butter fat and everything else. Uh, so if you equate it to a black skillet pan that you just kind of wipe out, you really can't 
wash those because they're going to rust. And so if you had a little residue built up around the edges and then you actually threw in, you know, something to fry, you would get that extra boost of flavor. That explains why I love the corner so much. Yeah, well, that's we over time. That's how people said, you know, just forget the pizza, just give me the corners. <laughs> sure. I, I, I won't lie. So, so Brad and I had some buddies overnighted in for this interview, uh, and I shared it with my wife last night, and she's like tried to eat all the centerpieces, and I didn't say anything. I was like, sure, go ahead, take them. <laughs> <laughs> well, the corners definitely uh, are, are are you know if you're an aficionado, and that's that's what you'd go for. That's why everybody asks for the corners. And how many of these pans are ex in existence in the buddies chain? Well, we probably have. 400 on average, 400 uh, 10 by 14, and about 350 8 by 10. So you got seven, eight hundred pans per location. Plus we have a lot in storage, so that that the pans are are. There's a seasoning process to them that we do, and we're constantly filtering pans and pulling pans out, uh, just like anything that you need to season. Um, there's a process for it, so we make sure that the pan, the metal has been sort of Heated up, and, and and you know you have to scrape off the coating on it, and then you, you you oil them, you bake them, you oil them, you bake them, you throw dough in them, you bake the dough, you throw the dough away. There's a whole process in order to get the pan, so it gives you the effect that you'd like. Mm. Oh my, this might be one of the most intense uh, restaurant processes I've ever heard. Well, that's fun. The funny part about it is, you know, just like with water in New York, I mean, there's people that have located pizza places around the country and have water shipped from New York because they swear by the water and that it affects the dough that much, uh, the quality of the dough, and it will, that uh, they'll, they'll use the New York water. And we're as, as passionate about the pan as, as someone would be about water or anything else, whether it's coffee or soda stuff like that. Water has a huge effect, especially when it's 50-60% of the weight of a piece of dough. Sure. So how did you get involved with Buddies? Um, I started there when I was 15. I, I lived in the area by the original store in the neighborhood. is east side of Detroit. And I started there when I was 15. And uh, so I started as a dishwasher and consequently moved through the ranks. Uh, went to school, graduated, and just stayed with Buddies, opened all the stores and sort of been involved in all the food development, a lot of the brand management stuff, uh, all the media efforts, the marketing stuff, just pretty much the whole operation. I mean, it's a, it's a family-owned business, um, so everybody wears a lot of hats. And uh, there's a lot of employees that have been in the system for a long time that are committed to the brand. Other than you, who've obviously been with the, the, the company for a while, uh, are there a lot of employees that have been with the company for a long tenure? I would say yes. I would say that on average we have some employees that have been here 20, 30 years. Um, we have an original crew of ladies that work there. Um, we used to call them the Supreme Court. They were all these big, bulky, strong women that sort of hovered over everything. The, the, the sauces, the, the pizzas, the... If we, I, I used to refer to them as the Supreme Court because if I mean, they would never let anything get out of hand. I mean, so, and we had, we call them the old timers, and that group was there when I started, and some of them went to stores, and consequently, you know, the years have gone on, and, and all of them have passed, but the, the, the people that were under them all sort of carried uh, the flags for, for quality and for adherence to, to recipes and, and the details that separate one type of product from another, and it's really what it is, attention to details. 
It's amazing. I was reading a, a pretty amazing article online where you were talking about the Supreme Court. Let's. Uh, I think pizza lovers would like to know a little bit more about them. Can you talk about like what their role was? How long they've been around? Are they still around? Is there someone? Well, that them? Connie, Connie Piccinato, who was basically started there in 1946. She was from Sicily, and she was very instrumental in creating the dressing that Buddy's is very famous for, as well as the pizza process. She was Sicilian, and the Sicilian-style crust, if you read up about Sicilian pizza, it's basically taking a, either Italian sausage or something, pressing it into the dough, adding some level of tomato on it, or cheese, Parmesan, usually Reggiano or something, and then it's baked off and then it's shared. So the, 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 that was the Sicilian style, sort of leftover dough. You press the meat in, and you create comfort food. Well, Connie started that. She was there. Then we had Gigi. We had Louisa. We had Anna. Uh, we had Mary. We had uh, Dee. And they were all, there were a few Italians. Uh, one was Yugoslavian. One was Serbian. Uh, well, that was the Yugoslavian. It was Italian. We had someone that was Polish. And uh, actually, we had two ladies that were Polish. And they all were probably in their late 60s, early 70s when I started. And they would basically make the dough. There would be two of them downstairs, three of them. Well, actually, there would be three downstairs, two upstairs. And because we had a basement at the original store, so everything got done in the basement. And they would oversee the making of the dough, the pressing of the dough. The ladies upstairs would cook on a line or make the salads. And then somebody would be on pizzas, making sure that you know the pizzas were properly handled, and that new hires and anybody else that came through the system uh, didn't, you know, try to introduce something that wasn't the the preferred method. I guess there were very many times where they would, you know, just they would get physical. If, <laughs> if they would get physical with the guys, if if the guys, I mean, some of them had arms that were like weightlifters, so nobody really messed with them. Trust me. So were they essentially like your quality assurance crew? They were quality assurance. And when we opened the first store, someone went over there, and there were many arguments, many, many fights, many because you know as you evolve, you have to you have to change some things, and it was very difficult with them because they thought any change was bad. There was no change could sometimes be good. Their position was change is always bad. You don't change anything. And it, and when I worked there. In, in the early 70s, I mean, if somebody ordered a salad minus salami, I mean, the wait staff then would say, no, I'm sorry, we don't make it without salami. <laughs> or the customers would go, well, if we don't make it with salami, but if you want to go down the street, there's a place that will make it for you. And that, I mean, that was pretty normal service back then. And if you had a pizza where you – let's say we had a super, which was cheese, pepperoni, onion, green pepper, mushroom, and ham, you couldn't take off an item off the super. So either you ordered the super or you didn't. And if someone said, I'd like a super minus mushroom, the servers would say, ma'am or sir, that's not a super. That's a cheese, pepperoni, mushroom, you know, whatever pizza. So it was that people were trained that way. There was no deviating from the menu. And so, again, the customers would come in and a lot of them would laugh at it. It became part of the folklore. So the staff would, would pretty much drive the way the customers would have to order. Looking at some of the old training material that we uncovered in the archives, I mean, literally, we were on the floor. We could not believe what was being written into these things in today's times. It was just unbelievable. The craziest thing you could imagine that a restaurant <laughs> would do, we did it. That's pretty fantastic that you have that information all at your fingertips. It's good, uh, good record keeping. Given that ethos of tradition and no changes being made, 
How much of that is still a part of Buddy's culture today? Well, I think with any business, there have to be non-negotiables. So you have to create an environment where you know what things can evolve and what things really need to stay in their present uh, state because they can affect the uh, totality of the product. So sometimes a little detail may not seem that important to a novice, but to someone that understands what that little component does makes all the difference in the world in, in separating you from everybody else or in maintaining the quality of it. So it has to go through rigorous sort of debate and testing no matter what it is. But I can tell you from the beginning, and these the 40 years that I've been here, I mean our sauce is the same, our, our dough recipe is the same, the flour is with the same company, with the same specifications, the yeast is still, you know, we get yeast delivered every week. So all those processes are still there. How we make the dough with the mixers, with, you know, now we do weigh out the flour, we measure the water, we measure the dough temp, we measure the water temp. But in the old days, of course, nobody needed to do that because everybody was an expert. You had two or three dough makers, and they were all doing it for 10, 15, 20 years prior to when I started. So there was never a need for that. But when you started opening restaurants, all those things that, people did because they sort of were trained in it, you had to create a system. So it's definitely a little bit more refined in that area, but uh, we do test pies every morning. So before the restaurant opens, we're cooking you know anywhere from 8 to 10 pizzas, varying toppings. They're laid out there for the staff. We critique it in the morning, change the, the ovens we try to keep consistent. The proofing process, which is when the dough is made, the cheese is applied, the dough has to rise for anywhere from two to three hours before the pizza can even be touched. The texture is evaluated during the day, and then we say good to go, you know, the ovens are good, and then the pizzas are then selected in the proofing cabinets, which ones are ready to go, so you're working from the ones that are properly proofed to the ones that need a little bit more time, and you just evolve into your shift, and dough is made throughout the day, and that's kind of how you maintain consistency. You want to make sure that the dough is made two, three hours in advance so that it has you know, time to proof and develop and then before that pizza is used. So there, it's, it's a very cumbersome, uh, labor-intensive process. But you know, when people or when your brand is Buddy's Pizza, <laughs> yeah. you better make sure the pizza is pretty good. How, how important would you say tradition is to the brand? I would say it's very important. I think with any business that's been around, people expect someone that's been doing pizza for a long time, there's a certain expectation with that. And when you have employees that you bring into the system, you have to create a culture. And if you don't have tradition, you're going to have a very diluted culture, and therefore the things that you hold dear are going to get washed away. And so then you might as well open up sort of a brand new restaurant and start all over because there's no value in the tradition. The, the, the brand equity and the, and the goodwill is all in tradition. That's, that's, that's the years that you paid the price for being where you are and you should leverage that. You should never, I mean it shouldn't be an anchor but it, it definitely should be used as a, as a strategy and, and, you, and, and used in a way to help market it. So when do, in the buddy system, to break tradition, like when would you say, okay, look, this tradition was great. It meant a lot to this time. 
we have to move on from it. Like, what would be a catalyst for breaking a tradition? Well, for instance, we throw the dough away every day. So you make dough, you create a certain amount of dough balls as sort of an insurance barrier for the volume of business that you project. And you can make anywhere from 60 to 80 of these dough balls that have to be stretched, pressed in that pan by hand at least two, three hours before you think you're going to need them. So there has to be a lot of anticipation by the managers. So if there's a weather issue or if there's something going on, chances are they'll go out and have somebody press those pizzas and have them staged there in the back. If you don't use them, you just pull the dough out, wipe the pan with the dough, and then it gets thrown away. Those dough balls can also be left in the cooler. Now, the tradition always was you throw those dough balls away in that cooler because. So what we did through the years is we tested that dough the following morning to see is this dough really, you know, past the point of being used? And we found that the dough actually is perfect for that first mix or whatever. So that was a break from tradition. Instead of throwing those dough balls away, there's times we may use those for the first mix because the dough still has a lot of life and it still has a lot of proofing because we don't use sugar. So our dough recipe is basically salt water yeast. So unlike other pizzerias that feed the yeast with sugar or honey or whatever they're using as an agent for the yeast, our dough only has a certain amount of shelf life. And so always it was thrown away. There are times where we have used it in the morning. So that, that's a little bit of a break from tradition. Uh, at times we ground the cheese a little bit finer than they did in the past. And part of it is because in the old days when they ground cheese and the cheese came in in 40-pound blocks, what would happen is the cheese would vary in its butterfat consistency throughout the year. And so sometimes you couldn't grind the cheese past almost the size of, you know, a huge marble, I guess, marble size. And that made it very hard to anticipate how it melts. So through the years, we added cornstarch to help so the cheese doesn't clump. And then later on, we started adding Parmesan, which eliminated the cornstarch because if someone put too much cornstarch in, the cheese would have a tendency to be gummy and lose some of its flavor. So we started adding a little bit of Parmesan. So the parm sort of used as an agent to help it from clumping. And it added a little bit of flavor to the brick cheese. Again, it didn't take anything away. It just basically didn't, like the cornstarch or, or even before that was flour, um, we wouldn't take away from the flavor. So that's why we did it that way. So th again, those are things that we evolved and for the better. But but in the day, if the ladies were there, they didn't anticipate you know the different issues we were having along the way. They were used to the original store at Six Mile where the kitchen was 130, 140 degrees during the summer. And there were certain conditions that uh, were different from new locations. So had they been exposed to new conditions, they probably would have agreed with most of everything that was done. Uh, what about things like new menu items? You know, Rev and I are big burger guys. You've got hamburgers on the menu now, sandwiches, chicken tenders. When did those come into play? We always, we always had a certain level. Burgers were always big. I mean, everybody in the city worked with flat-top grills. Some of those grills were in the system, again, for 20, 30, 40 years. I mean, those neighborhood bars in Detroit all had great burgers. There wasn't a burger that was sold in a, in a bar in Detroit that wasn't great because those flat tops, just like our blue steel pans, sort of became seasoned. 
through use. And the some of the best bars, Old Mill Bar, for instance, down the street, you know, they 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 had ridiculous burgers down there. But you know, he did, he when he closed his bar, he didn't even want to sell the grill. He closed the bar and sold it and kept the grill. <laughs> that, that, that's how important a piece of equipment like that was. And burgers for us, we always had great burgers. We had meat delivered four or five times a week. We have a company in Detroit from Eastern Market now that provides us our beef. It's sort of their blend, and um, it's it's a fine grind. We we like the meat ground a little bit finer, and we developed a Robbie sauce, uh, and you know it's a proprietary thing, and we brought in a very nice brioche bun, and our burgers are char grilled, and uh, the sauce definitely helps make the burger. But if someone doesn't want sauce, you know, the quality of the meat should stand on its own. And very little seasoning, just a basic salt and pepper. Um, and, and, you know, and, and we don't pack them too tight. We like to, I like to keep the burgers, I don't, I don't want to press too tight. I just, I like the heat to, to penetrate through the burger. And I found that if you press them too tight, sometimes the burgers don't cook properly. Mm-hmm. I like the heat to kind of transfer through. So, and we, and th- most of the menu items are really just an extension of what we've originally had. So if we had one of something, we just expanded it just to, so we can service maybe a new food trend but not get away from things like, you know, storage and handling and and all the other parts of the business that need to be taken into consideration when you're adding something. And some things have to be taken off sometimes that aren't selling. So big burger fan too. Des- despite being the massive burger fan that I am, and the uh, the massive fan of Detroit and the massive fan of Buddies, I can honestly admit, I've never walked into a Buddies and ordered a hamburger, and now, <laughs> and now after this conversation, I'm ashamed. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, the the burgers, you know, our feelings are everything on the menu should kind of stand on its own. I mean, I I don't think uh, anything that we do should be marginal. You know, so that that's always our philosophy. If it if it if it can't pass the, we use sort of like if someone comes into Buddy's because they said they heard great pizza, or that you have great pizza, and someone comes in and orders a burger and the burger just falls flat, it doesn't help the brand. So everything needs to be aligned, basically. Well, it it sounds to me like uh, consistency and quality overrule every other decision. I would say 100% right, and I think it's used quite often in the industry, as you know. Uh, most great companies, and McDonald's being the one that comes to mind about consistency, because in, in, in the day, McDonald's was really, uh, it was a machine. I mean, if you can mechanize a restaurant, they did it, and unfortunately, in my opinion anyways, they kind of lost their way a little bit, but I always marveled at McDonald's, at their ability to um, be able to do it everywhere, um, and so for buddies, we used, and I'm sure the term has been used, but the used Apple policy where you study some of the leaders in an industry and then you try to take things that would fit into your operation and kind of blend them together, uh, sort of create a, a map for yourself, but using the best pieces from everybody. And, and if you studied McDonald's in the beginning, clearly their consistency was what they stood on. We like consistency, but we also want flavor. I mean, there, there's a balance there. You want to make sure that you can deliver the flavor on a regular basis, and you want to make sure that the flavor doesn't 
overpower the food item from one bite to the fifth. In other words, sometimes people spice food from what I've seen where you can take the one bite, you go, wow, this is fantastic. But then you take three, four bites, you go, wow, that's a bit much. So you have to make sure when you're developing something that the first bite is great and the fifth bite is great. You don't want it to kind of get worse as you go. And that's kind of how I love our pizza too. It's, it's got a very balanced flavor. And uh, for, the, for the real hardcore aficionados of super spicy food, they may say, well, this is super bland. But if someone just wants something that they can eat and still feel okay, you know, hours or two later, I mean, you know, there's certain foods that or restaurants that do food that way. So let's, I think that's a good segue. Let's, let's talk about company culture. Uh, I think anybody that's ever been, anybody that's ever been to a buddy's pizza knows how dedicated and hardworking the staff is. You have the staff that's super dedicated, and then you have these incredibly high standards in, you know, quality, flavor, tradition, sourcing. How, how do you sort of inspire that loyalty and that tradition to come out through the staff? Well, I think it starts from, well, at least I'll give you an example in a new opening. We go through training. We go through manuals. We pretty much routine whatever everybody else does. But here's what's different. What's different is during the openings, we invite family and friends. All the employees invite their family. We let them bring as many people as they want. We have various sittings throughout the days. We include beverages. We include food. So every new employee, so let's say we hire 110, 120 employees. So the employees come in, they invite their family and friends. They're probably $15,000, $20,000 nights to, to buddies. But every one of these people that have come in, every one of these employees have had their family eating at buddies. And so now, once that happens, then you can talk to them and say, guys, here's how it works. You know, your family was here. We, we made food for your family. So that's how you need to look at our business. You need to feel like everyone you're waiting on is an extended part of your family. So whatever you would do for that, your family members, you do for these guests. And then we're going to be okay with that. And if you do all that, here's what's in it for you. In other words, you're going to have increased tips, increased volume, you know, all the things that relate to them. So you have to, you have to create the scenario by which they experience it, which is through the family stuff. And then you also have to create what's in it for them. And if you can blend those two together, and again, be very consistent, just like we did with the food, you have to be consistent with direction, feedback, follow-up, and constantly bringing to the forefront what is important. In other words, don't lose sight of the non-negotiables. And if people create non-negotiables that are realistic and can be achieved on a regular basis, typically the restaurants will run very well. And you have to look at the business, again, from the guest point of view first. So what does the guest value? You have to figure out what that is. And then you have to make sure that the staff, first and foremost, address what the guest values. Not what you value, but what that guest values. So it may be a comfortable chair. It may be you know, where it's not noisy. It may be that there's flexibility in ordering. It may be that can split checks. It may be that there isn't too much ice in the soda. It's all the things that matter. You know, flex straws, like, it's not a big deal, but, you know, flex straws cost more. Okay, and little kids, if you've ever seen a little kid try to drink a, a beverage or a soda, it's really tough for them without a flex straw. And a lot of restaurants use kitty cups. Well, guess what? How many kitty cups can you store? And that becomes an annoyance. So what we have done 
is we use our regular Cambro glassware where we found a lid, a regular plastic lid that fits on top of the Cambro glass. And so now instead of people having to bring sippy cups back home every other day, you know, they can just get a normal beverage or a normal soda, put a straw in, which is a flex straw, so that little kid sitting at that chair doesn't have to tilt the glass so he can drink it. Now, this is the kind of attention to detail that we would do through feedback and through constantly having, when we have pre-shifts and we have, we call them pre-shifts when the staff huddle up and we talk about things, and we constantly are in dialogue. So our managers, when you talk about building a culture, the managers have to talk to the employees as customers, and if employees have issues with what we're doing, we discuss it. And there's a lot of arm wrestling that goes on. So just because someone says something doesn't mean it goes. It has to be filtered through. There has to be vigorous debate. And if it if the idea wins the day, not the person, the idea. So that's how you have to look at it. There's no egos involved. So if you're truly after customer service, there's no such thing. I'm very involved in the uh, nonprofit world, the humanitarian world. So it was a huge interest to me when I found out that uh, Buddies is uh, started the Great Lakes Pizza Collection and the Motor City uh, Collection. Can you tell us about what those are for our audience and how that got started? Sure. Um, buddies, just to give you a little background, we have done community outreach and cause marketing before they created the terms. Buddies, again, being in the Detroit community, was always involved in, whether it was the PAL, which is the Police Athletic League, we are always involved in softball sponsorships, we are always involved in somehow getting the brand out there in the community. As the years went on, we partnered with what was called the Capuchin Soup Kitchen, which was our primary uh, soup kitchen in the city of Detroit that feeds and houses and uh, clothes, not houses, but finds them housing, clothes, and, and, and produces, uh, you know, resources for the people that can't help themselves and 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 so we were involved with the Capuchins probably going on 37, 38 years and then after that we did a lot of things that always were related to the pizza. We created an environment where buddies would tie a pizza to a charity or to some kind of uh, money uh, where a company's trying to raise money, money raising efforts. And we always found partners that we truly valued. In other words, what does Buddy stand for? And then what does this nonprofit or this group stand for? And is there some synergy? Are we aligned in our values? Are we going to be around for more than a year or two? Are we serious? So we always pick the main ones. We picked, you know, the Great Lakes are obviously important to Michigan. We worked with the Great Lakes. We said, listen, kids don't understand the importance of the Great Lakes. So we're involved in, in paying for curriculum. We're, we're paying for these little sets that the Great Lakes people can go out there and go to school districts and sell them a kit so that teachers can teach about the Great Lakes. We did the stuff with the Detroit Zoo where we created a pizza that raised money for the zoo. We, Henry Ford, Greenfield Village, again, these are all nonprofits. You know, we did stuff now with the Motown Museum, very big in the city of Detroit. Uh, Motown is huge to the city. So we now we have a Motown Museum pizza that we're raising money to keep that museum operating because that museum is what shares the history of Motown and the city. So our involvement with sort of 
partners. I mean, you, and then you're also talking about things like breast cancer awareness. You're talking about, and we've done them all. And that is, again, one of the great things about Buddies. It's more than just a restaurant group. We're a community partner. And people come to us all the time, and we rarely say no, whether it's in a form of gift letters, it's a form of uh, creating vehicles where they can raise their money by doing bounce-back events where we would issue them a certain marketing piece. They would be responsible for passing them out. People would bring them into the restaurant. We would bounce them back 2 or $3 for, per uh, redeemed piece and then donate the money to them. We're working with the Humane Society right now. As another example, we were having our multigrain dough, which is a very sort of coarse product that wouldn't, wouldn't sit for very long. So we wound up having to throw away a lot of dough. We threw away the dough because it dried out, because in a proofing process, the dough would dry out. And so everyone was getting frustrated. Like you'd have to make the dough, you have to press the dough, and then you'd throw out the dough because it didn't have a long life. So we brainstormed. We came up with, went on the Internet, found a little, looked like a bone thing for a cup, you know, for the cookie thing, a cookie cutter. It was shaped like a bone. So we started pressing it down on the multigrain. <laughs> we made... Uh, dog biscuits out of it hmm. we've, we've raised we so we we every piece of dough that is not edible for the gas because it's too dry we hit it with this thing we're making like 10 or 12 or 14 biscuits we pack them up it's a two dollar donation for five or six biscuits of this multi-grain dough we've raised over ten thousand dollars for the humane society and we sell them at all the stores now and they're called buddy bones Wow. So now all that multigrain crust that was getting wasted got turned into buddy bones. And so we worked with their uh, vets. They, they looked at the recipes. Everything passed mustard. They said it was fantastic. We've been on many TV shows where we've had dogs that are up for adoption through the Michigan Humane Society, and uh, they love the buddy bones. So, again, it's another thing where the, the brand – you know, sort of thinking the the communities out there. Who can we help? You know, how can we partner? And that and that to me is one of the greatest things in the world is being able to partner with nonprofits. And I think restaurants in general could be well served by getting into their communities and finding partners that they can really make a difference with, and partners that are actually making a difference. You should really study who does what, because there's some amazing people out there that are actually are doing the work. You have to be really careful because we've been approached by people that aren't really doing the work. And we're very selective. We're just not going to partner with somebody unless we're, you know, they have history. It sounds like you have some, uh, some amazing high standards. Uh, and I'm excited to know that if I ever become a dog owner again, my dog can also enjoy Buddy's Pizza. With oh, me. my God. The Buddy Bones are ridiculous. <laughs> I actually had a guy, believe it or not, I had a guy walking his dog. He was from out of town. He was staying at hotels for some hockey tournament, and I was at the actually one of our new locations just standing outside looking at the facility, and the guy was walking his little dog, and I just said, hi, how are you? He goes, and I said, are you familiar with buddies? Just talking. No, I'm from out of town, blah, blah, blah. So you have the dog out there, and I said, you know what? Uh, can I bring him something? And the guy look, kind of looked at me. I said, we got a product called Buddy Bones. He goes, nah, he's kind of finicky, you know, he doesn't, you know, whatever. So I said, well, I'm just going to do it. So I ran inside, grabbed some buddy bones, brought them out. 
this little dog literally almost nipped my finger, and the guy could not believe it how much his dog loved the buddy bones. He's very finicky. <laughs> <laughs> that that is that is awesome. Uh, so, so, since we've now moved to a, a, a lighthearted note, let, let's talk. Uh, so you know, Brad and I are both big burger fanatics, and that, that's sort of how this all came together. Uh, we like to ask our guests uh, the same questions about burgers. So, uh, so Wes, I hope you're ready to be grilled about hamburgers. No, that's fine. Uh, and, and I think I know what your no first. Pun in, no, no pun intended, right? Uh, Absolutely, and we are not above puns on the show. <laughs> what was your favorite childhood burger? Okay, well, childhood burgers, if you grew up in Detroit, there's Bates, there's Greens. I would say Greens, uh, sort of like the equivalent of a slider, where you know the grilled onion would sit there, the burger would sit there on the grill, you got the dill chip and you got the mustard and you got the ketchup sort of blended together, and you had it on a little bun that kind of sopped all the grease from the onions and uh, you had it rolled up in some paper and uh, I would say greens was the best growing up. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna and say Bates, this for the sake of starting an argument but I'm a Bates guy. <laughs> and Bates, Bates is the same way. I, I ate them I ate them all and trust me it all depends on the time of the night it is but <laughs> the burgers would the burgers would be amazing. And my new favorite and my new favorite, to be honest with you, which is what I what I tried. I was at it. I was in New York, and we just happened to go in the uh, Flatiron District and walk, walked into Madison Square Park and saw uh, Shake Shack, which again I've been reading in the trades about it. So um, I of course had double with the with the Shake Shack Shake uh, Shack sauce and the lettuce, and I had and put dill chips on it, and I, it was it was ridiculous. I, I've met just was blended so well together and just it was amazing to me. You actually answered our second question. We ask our we ask our guests what their what their the last burger they just ate was. So you're you're way ahead of us on that one. Oh, sorry about that, but yeah. <laughs> uh, and Wes, uh, one last question. Uh, we ask everybody, what is one piece of advice you would give someone in the food marketing business? Um, obviously, you have to be passionate about food, and you have to know your food. And I think also knowing your target market is very important. I think too many people want to be too many things. And I think you need to develop, and we use the term a selling proposition, you need to figure out uh, you know, what, what makes your product stand out. And if it doesn't stand out, it needs to be made to stand out. And uh, it has to have something that, is an improvement on what's already out there. And, and again, consistency to me is very important. If you're going to make something, make sure you can produce it all times of the day, many different uh, sales volumes, uh, not just something that feeds in someone's ego in the operation or something, but something that really can stand, uh, produced by just the average person with basic training and, and that kind of criteria helps limit a lot of, or limit what you're going to do. Uh, and also talk to the customers. I think getting feedback on something is critical. And because of the internet and because of all the online stuff that's out there, you can get so much market research. And even if people don't like things, you need to know why. Because that helps shape how you're going to brand it, how you're going to position it. And sometimes with customers, like we hear a lot of things and it's not always what they intend to tell you, it's what you actually are reading in what they're telling you. So you have to do some analysis of data. 
but be very open to feedback. Doesn't mean you're going to change everything every day. Doesn't mean you should just abandon everything. It just means that the more information you have, the more it helps crystallize something. Just be very selective in 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 how you put it all together. You know, sometimes too much information can be distracting. But if you know what you're looking for because you understand what you're trying to do, uh, you'll pick usually pick out the right pieces, and and that to me is uh, is very important for anybody that's doing it. I think uh, I think that's some outstanding uh, advice. Thank you so much. Well, Wes, we want to we want to thank you for being on the show. I think this has been an amazing talk about branding, tradition, customer service, quality, so on and so forth. Uh, now that everybody's listening, is probably having some serious pizza itis. Uh, let's talk about Buddy's half-baked pizzas <laughs> and how they can get them if they don't live in the Detroit area. Well, they can go to our website because they we do have the information on the website at www.buddiespizza.com, and uh, there's inf- information for shipping. But truly, too, when you when you do get the pizzas that are shipped, uh, you know the thawing out process and making sure that the oven's set correctly and making sure that whether you have a pizza stone or whether you have some kind of uh, baking sheet that is a little bit thicker, preheating the oven and uh, slowly getting it to temperature and stuff like that is really helpful. I found also that spritzing it with a tiny bit of water doesn't hurt it either because it helps reconstitute the dough a little bit and to kind of get that little bit of that steaming effect going and it kind of creates a little bit of a lighter crust because Buddy's is known for the crunchy crust and that's part of how we position the pizza because we don't use sugar or oil in the dough. It's what's considered a lean crust so it can has a tendency to be coarser at times if it's not done correctly but um, but that would help uh, get it as close as you can to coming in to Detroit and having it at one of the restaurants. Brad, I feel like we could do a whole another podcast just with like Wes's buddy's pizza hacks. <laughs> yeah, you guys got to come into Detroit. <laughs> now I want a hamburger. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll be in I'll be in town in two weeks. You know where I'll be going. <laughs> okay, well, listen, when you're in town, you call me. We're going to the original store in Detroit, and we're in, I'm going to bring out one of those pans out of that kitchen. Oh, all right, let's do it. Um, so I'm going to show you how this thing looks. You know what? You know what we need to figure out, Brad, and we'll, we'll share this story with Wesley here. We need to get Nick Solaris from Eater out to Detroit and to have him eat from one of these pans. Yeah, for sure. So, so Wesley, the, we'll give you a quick background on how this all came together, and then, then we'll let you go. So Brad and I were having sure. an ar- argument about you know Destro- Detroit-style pizza on Twitter, and this article came out on a website that's very popular around here in New York City called Eater, and uh, it, oh, it, yeah. it was uh, you know the, the be- New York it was like New York pizza styles, you know, like the the comprehensive. Uh, New York pizza style, you know, missive, like this style and this style was like, you know, New York style pizza, a complete guide. And so I read the whole thing, and then even at the end, they started talking about regional pizza that is represented here, whether that's like a Connecticut or a Midwest or whatever. And at the very end of it, I was like, what? No mention of Detroit style pizza? Like there was even a section for what's missing. And so Brad and I got super argumentative, like if you're going to do the complete guide and you're going to talk about what's not here and you're going to leave out Detroit-style pizza, then you have misrepresented the entire genre. Well, long story short, the writer went back and rewrote the article and added in a section about Detroit-style pizza just to placate Brad and I arguing over Twitter. 
Oh, that is fantastic. Oh, I saw I saw what it was on Eater. It was unbelievable. I mean, to me, to this day, I'm shocked that when you look at the chains in Detroit that originated, it was Little Caesar or Donald, it, forget the big chains, but then you have you know sort of the regional chains, the Hungry Howies and the Jets and all these different guys. I mean, if you're talking about a pizza capital, are you kidding me? Detroit and Michigan and our style of pizza, which really hasn't been developed across the country. Jets has locations around some states and stuff like that, but Buddy's Square Style Pizza is just a, as important a category as the New Haven, the California, New York style, whatever there is out there, Chicago style. It's every bit as relevant. It's just, you know, Detroit takes a beating, as you know, mm -hmm. and uh, we're hopefully coming back. And uh, we, we'd like Buddy's Pizza to kind of be, be the, the, the headlight, at least for the pizza side. And Detroit should be the the home of Detroit original square style pizza. So, well, Wes, it's been a sincere pleasure. Uh, thank you for joining us on like uh, bite chat. Well, thank you so much. Really, I had a lot of fun. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of Like, Bite, and Share. We hope you found today's interview insightful. If you didn't get a chance to write down everything, no worries. We take the show notes for you. Go to schweidandsons.com slash podcast to find them. If you enjoy the show, we ask for one favor, and that's please give us a rating in iTunes. That helps us to spread the word to others who might find this valuable like you do. If you haven't subscribed to the show yet, please subscribe on your favorite podcast player so you don't miss a future episode featuring helpful tips from other professionals in the food marketing business. Stay hungry.